Welcome back, listeners. This is Darla, Michelle, and Rebecca. We are here to talk about pulmonary hypoplasia. Pulmonary hypoplasia, as we'll discuss, is an underdevelopment of lung tissue. Yeah, I kind of feel like fetal development is like a Roomba. Like, as soon as it hits resistance, it's like, eh. Done. Yeah. We've done enough. So a lot of times with hypoplastic lungs, right, something is happening that's sort of compressing that thoracic space. Well, so I think I would really like to talk about pulmonary hypoplasia in the absence of a diaphragmatic hernia because we covered diaphragmatic hernia and a diaphragmatic hernia is a huge risk factor for those hypoplastic lungs. So in the absence of a diaphragmatic hernia, some of the risk factors for lung hypoplasia are absence of amniotic fluid. So that amniotic fluid really helps to, well, so there's a difference between like fetal lung fluid and amniotic fluid, but But they develop on the same track. Correct. And so if you have low amniotic fluid, the baby is at risk for pulmonary hypoplasia. What, what do you guys typically see from a nursing standpoint? with pulmonary hypoplasia, when you're getting a report from L&D or the oncoming shift, and this is a new baby, what are kind of the buzzwords for like, oh, this baby probably has... Well, oligo or anhydramnios. Yeah, that's a huge one. It's huge. Prolonged rupture of membranes. Yeah. And prolonged... uh, I worry with prolonged rupture of membranes, not only about pulmonary hypoplasia but infection right even Mm -hmm. if mom has been treated with antibiotics for the duration of that rupture of membranes it's still in the back of my mind that this baby could have a bacterial infection a fungal infection in those lungs right to make them ineffectively exchange oxygen i mean you talk about a diaphragmatic hernia but hydrops is another one that I feel like hydroptic babies don't have the space. Fair. Dwarfism. Dwarfism. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Cystic hygromas. I thought I read or mm-hmm. heard one time that one of the more severe forms of osteogenesis imperfecta, is that something that you guys have heard, that lung hypoplasia? No, but I can believe it. Well, because... OI is a defect of collagen, which is what gives that stretch, right? So if you don't have the ability to create that elastic tissue, it would make sense to me. I mean, it makes sense to me too. And I can't remember where I heard it. So let's kind of like shelve that one for a bit. Okay. So as far as the care of these babies, when they come over to the NICU, what... Wait, there was one more thing. Oh, go ahead. Um, I feel like any time prenatally there has been a question of kidney function. Yes, yes. kidneys. Right, yes. so babies with um, polycystic kidneys, with renal agenesis, um, with potters, with prune belly, with any of those things. Um, even if you see like some hydronephrosis on an ultrasound, it any anything that the kidneys are part of, I feel like for me triggers that question yeah, of just some kind of like little buzz. Right. Yeah. I mean like, the same as a as 
prolonged rupture or oligo would trigger, like seeing that would right, kind right. of trigger that. And so as far as like the bedside management of these babies, I feel like the longer the rupture of membranes, the lower the amniotic fluid, the more likely this baby is to have pulmonary hypoplasia. Would you... Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so these babies end up being really difficult to ventilate because you don't have those, uh, you don't have that lung compliance. Right. Well, because even not only do you not have the lung compliance, right? Like a lot of what we talked about with BPD was lung compliance, but they don't even have as much available lung. Correct. The lung tissue is just not there. Right. So you have, you have non-compliant and also less of it. Right. So it's really difficult. So it's really difficult to manage from a respiratory standpoint. And so when you have these, these lungs that are just not compliant, these babies are at risk for pulmonary hemorrhage. They're at risk for air leak. Yeah. You know, so you're looking at the possibility of a pneumothorax Huge, huge risk for pneumos. Mm -hmm. So then what you end up hearing the providers kind of like battle with is, do we give this baby surfactant or do we try to gently ventilate with an oscillator with bubble and hope that they kind of make their own pulmonary surfactant? Right. Because they're at risk for a pneumothorax and pulmonary hemorrhage. And we know giving surfactant increases increases that risk right. so they're you know i've been in conversations where we're kind of talking back and forth about it do we or don't we give surfactant what do we do how do we manage this baby um and i don't think i have ever seen surfactant given to a baby with suspected pulmonary hypoplasia without an x-ray to confirm the absence of a pneumothorax yeah. Like I think mm-hmm. I, across the board, any facility that I've worked in, it's been like, Oh, pause this baby. Yeah. The breath sounds are equal on both sides. We think our endotracheal tube is in the right place. However, we know this baby has been in a ruptured amniotic sac or without fluid for X amount of weeks. And so we need that X-ray along with that X-ray. I feel like either you have two schools of thought there of I'm giving surfactant early or I'm waiting to the last possible minute yes. of it being effective when I give the right. surfactant. Right. Because it's just a tug of war between mm-hmm. like, how do we manage this? And it is, it's either like, okay, let's just like bite the bullet and do it now, or let's wait and see. Uh, and also I feel like from the bedside perspective, at any point that you decide you're getting surfactant, I'm going to go ahead and get the code box. Yeah. Just because I feel like these kids don't, they don't always tolerate that well. The pneumo risk is huge. Pulmonary hemorrhage risk is huge because with pulmonary hypoplasia, you have less vasculature around the lung tissue. Right. Like you have less pulmonary vasculature is what I'm trying to say. Which can also mean, I mean, when you think about it, it can also mean that your major vessels are more likely to be distended because they don't have that sort of capillary bed that sort of diverts right. some of the volume. Right. So I, what these is, kids are just, they, they're a little scary. 
they're a little mm-hmm. scary. And a lot of the times what I see on these babies are pre and postductal sats. Um, just to kind of look at, does this baby have pulmonary hypertension right out of the gate? And usually they do have some degree. Usually that's there. At some degree. There's a lot of debate currently in neonatology about, um, inhaled nitric for, um, extremely premature babies. And, you know, how do we think these babies with pulmonary hypoplasia that are extremely premature will respond to INO? I feel like that's right at this point in time. That's like a latch ditch effort. Well, tried all the things. My understanding is actually at least at the point that I was having this discussion with one of my attendings years ago, like maybe five or six years ago, that those babies actually don't have the receptors that would allow INO to be effective. Which, I mean, as fast as neonatology changes, you know, our understanding five or six years ago could be completely out the window. Yeah. Something totally different, but it could be, I, you know, I hear it, I hear it tossed around a lot. Like, do we, do we not try? And it is typically like very last ditch kitchen sink. Yeah. Yeah, It's still a kitchen sink moment. I don't think if the research is not there or providers are just don't have a comfort level with it in these babies. Right. It's more of a okay, we're going all out here. Right. right. So when we talk about um, hypoplasia, I, I think it's also important to recognize that I mean, not only do these babies not tolerate these things well, but especially when you're talking about not prematurity. All right. So prematurity is not part of this particular discussion for a moment. A lot of these kids don't live because... They don't have enough pulmonary function to sustain themselves. Right. So mm-hmm. even if you say like renal agenesis or Potter's, right? Even if I could get you on peritoneal dialysis really, really early, and even if I was able to maintain you on PD until you got to the point that you needed to get to so that we could do the things that we needed to do, a lot of these babies end up you know, dying of respiratory complications because they don't have enough to be able to sustain. Right. I think prune belly, we had a prune belly that was, I mean, we were managing her kidneys. She was getting PD. She was stable, you know, on her PD. Mm -hmm. And she just outgrew her lungs and was uh, PPHN and then corpomonal at five months old. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you kind of bring up the idea that they just don't have enough. Um, reading from Avery's Diseases of the Newborn, definitive diagnosis of pulmonary hypoplasia can only be made on autopsy. And it looks at the ratio of body weight to radial alveolar counts, how much lung tissue does this baby have compared to their weight? Mm-hmm. Right. It's like they literally outgrow their lungs. Yes. And that is, I think, what happens. And it, I, I think we see it. The other place that I feel like I see this very frequently is not hypoplasia at delivery, but these kids that are growth-restricted, severe IUGR, particularly when it's combined with prematurity, I feel like these babies get to be three or four months old and whatever it is that seemed to make their vasculature not keep up enough to allow them to grow in utero, it, it is like they literally outgrow their vessels. Mm-hmm. 
like it gets to a point where they cannot sustain themselves. They just, they, they don't have enough. They don't have enough. Right. How is that related to kidney dysfunction? So the kidneys and the lungs and the ears, they all go together because they all start at the same time. And all I, all I know to say that easily, you're, first of all, you're the expert, so you're going to answer your own question in a second, but, um, I wouldn't call myself an expert. Fetal lung fluid and amniotic fluid develop on the same tract. We know this. And the kidneys are responsible for the amniotic fluid. So typically, if your kidney dysfunction is making not enough amniotic fluid, you would assume that there's not enough lung fluid either. That's exactly it. Yay! Oh my God! I was right. That's exactly it. So your kidneys function, your fetal kidneys function, they make the amniotic fluid, which fill the lungs and help those lungs grow. Exactly it. Well, that was a lucky accident, I think, that I just explained that right then. Yes, you did a great job. When we have these babies and they're at risk for pneumothorax, when they're at risk for pulmonary hemorrhage, they're at risk for persistent pulmonary hypertension, we really, going back to bronchopulmonary dysplasia and just like that they need to be gently ventilated and so often when we see these kids and they're not so severe that they don't survive they really need that gentle ventilation in the beginning and not giving them those high pressures and so we kind of go back to that you know if these babies are desatting you don't want to give them ppv at high pressures. Right. Well, and I also think that these to some degree are similar to cardiac babies that, you know, we have to meet a, a patient where they are. Like these babies may need to run sat limits that are lower. You know what I mean? Like they, they may not be able to sustain what we would consider normal. Right. Like an 80 to 85 might be there. Right, they might be okay. And so we do allow a little bit of that, like, hyper, that, like, hypercapnia in these babies. We do mostly let their CO2s climb a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? And, you know, so that, so that ventilation, it just looks a little different in these kiddos. Yeah, I, I just, the, I feel like the whole picture kind of looks different. I do, the last time I had a primary that had hypoplastic lungs, there was a conversation that we had early that we're going to give her everything we can. She may come to a place where she tells us that what we have is not enough. And that right. isn't something that we can do anything about. Yeah. And obviously kids survive this. Obviously. Right. And so that prolonged that with that prolonged ventilatory support, they do end up growing eventually normal lung tissue. I think it's just, again, the degree, because at some point, if you don't have enough, there's nothing I can do. Correct. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you, when you see things where they tell you that there's a severe hypoplasia, 
right? Versus a more mild. And also if it's related to kind of what's going on, you know, I, I can't even recount how many times we've, we've said that these were hypoplastic, that they didn't grow only to find out that whatever it is did in fact grow. It was just compressed, mm -hmm. right? Cause babies make liars of us all the time, which is part of what makes us awesome. Um, and so if your hypoplasia is secondary to something, right? So hypoplastic lungs, because you're a preemie is, is very different from a baby with potters. Yes. Right. When you have a D hernia and you have hypoplastic lungs because of a diaphragmatic hernia, we don't know at what point that diaphragmatic hernia developed. So it's possible that you have a fully functional lung that will inflate as soon as you get the guts out of the way. And it's also possible that the, all you have is a lung bud. It's possible. I, I can even think of a conversation that we've told parents. It was a pretty significant diaphragmatic hernia. And we said, I, I don't, we don't know yet if you're going to have basically one lung, right? Or if everything is going to be fine and just a, a mild I'm deficit. Honest, yeah. And I've seen it go both ways. I have too. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I feel like we mention often managing expectations and definitely managing expectations is part of this. And, and I feel like sometimes that's a struggle in what we do is balancing. I don't want to take your hope away with, I don't want to give you false hope. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just from um, reading about pulmonary hypoplasia, it's usually evident within minutes of birth with these babies. You know, we try ventilation strategies and they're just not working. Right. It's usually. It, I think the ones that are not like, compatible. Yes. The ones that, you know, you're having those discussions with the parents of what the outcome might look like. It is typically, yes, evidence within minutes, unlike bronchopulmonary dysplasia, unlike respiratory distress syndrome, you know, your traditional respiratory diseases that we see, you know, respiratory distress syndrome can take hours to a day to kind of present itself. Right. Bronchopulmonary dysplasia, we talked about 36 weeks in severe pulmonary hypoplasia it's usually within the delivery room. Yes. Those minutes into the NICU that we can really see our ventilation strategies probably are just not going to work. Right. And, and I do think a benefit of that particular situation, most of the time we're going in with some sort of something that kind of gives you a head up, a heads up. Do you know what I mean? Like they saw hypoplasia on a fetal echo. We know that this baby has been ruptured for a long time. Like there are sort of indicators that would lead us to maybe have those conversations early. It's pretty rare. I feel like that you try and it just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, short of like an undiagnosed diaphragmatic hernia that you wouldn't see, which definitely definitely happens oh god almighty do they happen um 
But short of that, I feel like a lot of times, do you guys agree that that's something that we kind of have some warning? Yeah, I feel like more often than not, we have warning because there's something there, whether it's no amniotic fluid to something with the kidneys. It's given the prenatal care in the United States, the, the widespread prenatal care, I don't think pulmonary hypoplasia is a surprise right. in most cases. Not most cases. Your your surprises are your mamas with no prenatal care. They just roll up in the hospital and are like, I'm here to have a baby. Yeah. Oh, my God. Those are your surprises. But I think for the most part, you kind of have a heads up. You've been able to counsel with that family about this is what we're looking at. This is what we're going to do. Right. Um, so I feel like it's a little bit easier to manage in most cases. Well, because you're going in with those same expectations. And we um, recently at my facility had a baby with high drops that, I mean, we knew. Mm-hmm. We knew that there was a good chance that the lungs weren't going to be enough to be able to sustain the baby. We knew that there was a good chance that there were going to be multiple pleural effusions, even at delivery, that would make it impossible to ventilate initially. So you, I think, develop a sort of strategic plan before you ever get to that point. I think kind of what you're hinting at there is that working with the obstetric team to really determine a plan. I know MRIs can be used to kind of gauge how much fetal lung tissue is there to give an idea as to what the management is going to be. Right. Um, you know, especially looking at you know, prior to 26 weeks, you know, what what is the management plan going to be based off of what an MRI would show? Even without an MRI, being able to say to the parents, you know, I mean, again, we can do this much. Mm-hmm. Your baby has to meet us. Somewhere. Somewhere Somewhere along the way. So our plan is we will intubate, Mm -hmm. right? And we will attempt to ventilate. Right. But if the airway is too small for us to get a breathing tube in, if we try and ventilate and there's not enough compliance, if any of those things, you you need to be aware that this is a possibility, Mm -hmm. right? Before, Before we get to that place. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they need to be, you need to be aware because going into a baby with hypoplastic lungs, you don't know. You, like you said, it could be nothing there. It could be, it's going to pop open when we ventilate it a little bit. You just don't know. So I think having a very wise and smart game plan in place of if this meet, if this baby meets us at point A, we're going to continue to point B. Right. But if we don't make it to point A, that's on the baby. That's on the baby. And at this point, we're going to stop and we're going to let you spend whatever little time that you have with your baby, not in a traumatic situation. Right. Right. And again, experimental. Michelle and I were talking about this in the congenital diaphragmatic hernia episode. It's, like I said, experimental. And um, I pulled this from Avery's Diseases of the Newborn whether the technique is valuable or not has yet to be determined, but in the presence of, you know, premature rupture of membranes, um, 
to trap the fetal lung fluid in the lungs to promote growth, the trachea can be occluded via fetoscope. Um, and again, that is experimental. It might, wherever these facilities are performing this, I think we had seen Johns Hopkins was doing this. Um, you know, hopefully there's more research to come. I feel like as a, as a nerd, I struggle so much with things like this because I love the development and I love geeking out over the strategy. Mm-hmm. I struggle because parents get on Google and they heard that this one time we had a mom two weeks ago who told us that she has done her research and 22 weekers live all the time. They don't. <laughs> I know. And if they do live, what quality of life do they have? And also, I know that. I've... But it's it's the struggle is real when I feel like families have access to information that is partially accurate. It's I love hate relationship. A hundred percent. Like that we have a society that really wants to educate themselves. However, we also have an educate uh, society that puts information out there, but not in its entirety. Right. Or without vetting it. Correct. Like, oh, I had a 22-weeker that lived. However, what are the overall survival morbidity rates of 22-weekers? Right. And also, is your 22-weeker really 22 weeks or were your dates off? Because I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a baby that was supposed to be 22 weeks that was born with, like, eyes wide open. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, not a 22 weeker. Are, are you being honest about what your life with a 22 weeker is? Right. What right. what it looks like. What it truly what it looks like. Really looks like. Now, have we periodically seen those 22? Sure. Weekers? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely, we have. I mean, I we have seen those 22 weekers. You would have thought that they were like a 30 weeker. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. Not in early presentation, but like going home while they're doing fantastic. It happens. It really does. Um, how, what is the incidence of that? Well, and I, I just feel like, you know, when it talks, when you talk about things like that, those experimental procedures, I feel like it, it is a difficult balancing act because parents know it's available I don't think they understand that you're talking about potentially two or three practitioners in the country that Correct. do it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Two or three. And, and if you are lucky that those two or three are at different centers, then you have space at different centers. But more often than not, they are two or three people within the same facility that has a very limited availability to be able to do that. And then, I mean, again, we go back to managing expectations. I think parents sometimes have these unrealistic expectations. Right. And having worked in the obstetric world, when you're talking about premature rupture of membranes, you're talking about, okay, do we do this experimental thing knowing that mom is at risk for sepsis, mm-hmm. that baby's at risk for sepsis. You know, what What are the criteria for these experimental things? And when you have a baby who has potter sequence or, you know, a hypoplastic kidney that really isn't functioning. So, yeah, I think that there's a lot of pieces to that. 
Not that it makes it any less fascinating. It's completely fascinating. It is. And, and geeking out, like, for sure. And I love that. I just think that that's a facet of that that we as providers of care have to be considerate of. I will never forget, I used to teach about kangaroo care, and there was an episode of Grey's Anatomy where mm-hmm. Alex Karev kangaroos the baby that was post-ECMO, <laughs> right? And granted, Alex Karev can kangaroo me, and I would heal magically, I'm sure. But... Um, he, he kangaroos this baby and then the baby is miraculously saved and parents saw that. And we had parents who would be then adamant that they needed to kangaroo their baby right now, because that was the only thing that was going to heal the baby. And it just, it feels sometimes unfair, the expectations that parents have, because it feels like no matter what we do, we'll never meet that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. I will give you the resources. If you say, I want to be informed. Absolutely. I will point you in the right direction all day long. Mm -hmm. Yes. I want you to be informed. I want you to have a good understanding of what's going on with your baby. Mm -hmm. What I don't want you to do is to go Go and get random information and hyper fixate on the worst case scenario that may not ever happen Or or... The opposite of my baby's going to be so good, they're going to walk on water. Because most times, most of the times, babies are somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Right. And and all of these things that we talk about present on a scale, on a spectrum. Yes. Right. Everything. So hypoplasia of the lung can be incredibly mild. And you're talking about, you know, a, a single lobe deficit, mm-hmm. Right versus you can have a complete diaphragmatic hernia where the entire lung doesn't develop at all. Right. And it's it's a it's a vast difference between the two. So you can say yes, my baby had hypoplasia of the lung and did great. But you don't realize that your baby's hypoplasia was so mild that it probably would have gone unrecognized. Right. Right in any mm-hmm. other situation. And, and I think as, as care providers, that's important for us to sort of keep in the back of our mind too. Like when we talk about being able to sustain a baby and make sure that they have enough, right? Some of these kids, you have to give yourself permission to understand they're not ever going to have enough. Right. 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 We're not ever going to be able to do enough. Right. To sustain them. Um, I feel like especially newer nurses struggle with that because you feel like you're supposed to save everybody. Mm-hmm. And sometimes babies aren't built for that. They're not. Sometimes the most kind thing you can do is not intervene. Yes. 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 Which I think is, you know, a discussion for another day, but also important to acknowledge when we talk about something like this, because hypoplasia isn't something that we can fix right? We can manage it yes, to the best of our ability, but we can't fix it. I, I think it's important to be able to offer parents a judgment-free out that says, if you ever get to a place where you feel like it's unkind to continue what we're doing, all you have to do is say stop. Mm-hmm. And, and we won't ever judge you. In fact, most of us would respect 
that decision and, and the kind of love that goes into making that choice, because that's not an easy choice to make. I feel like a lot of parents feel like they're unable to say that sometimes when maybe they would want to. Right. Yeah. And I think that is a good thing to talk about with these babies, especially when we're talking about severe pulmonary hypoplasia. Yeah. And even with imaging, even with statistics, we don't know how each baby is going to be. I mean, there's been babies where they have had like severe oligohydramnios for weeks and weeks and weeks. And you think, wow, we're going to have a really hard time managing this baby. It's going to be extremely difficult. Right. And the baby is born and they require very little support. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you have those babies that are born and they've been ruptured for just a few days and they come out and they're extremely difficult. So you have a full range a full spectrum of what could happen and we just don't being able to say just because you are okay with this today doesn't mean you have to be okay with this tomorrow right because that picture is constantly changing you know what what the baby what the baby is telling us if we will stop being so arrogant to think that we know all the things and shut up and listen to what the baby is saying yeah. right uh, a lot of times the baby will tell us that he, I was okay before, but I'm not, but I'm not anymore. I'm tired. This mm-hmm. is too much. I can't do it. And being able to recognize that and say like, I mean, yesterday it was okay, but today it's not okay. Yeah. Like, and, and empower parents to say the same thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What else do we have to add about, um, pulmonary hypoplasia? I don't, I don't think a lot. I think the big thing with these babies, when we can ventilate them, it just has to be gentle and mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, as a bedside nurse, when you hear that sort of debate between whether to give surfactant and not to give surfactant, know where that's coming from. Right. You know, and it, it does, it comes from the fact that these babies are at higher risk for pulmonary hemorrhage, for pneumothorax, for pulmonary hypertension. Um, so there's there's a lot of a lot of um, debate from baby to baby, and it's not even provider to provider. It's really case to case with these babies. Right. Mm-hmm. I do think a lot of the things that we talked about in BPD really apply here too, as far as maintaining recruitment, because when you talk about, you know, hypoplasia, if these babies lose lung by de-recruiting, I mean, you're going from, I just barely have enough to now I got nothing. Yeah. Right. They really can't afford to de-recruit much at all. So really being very careful to, you know, monitor leakage. If you've got an IV to make sure that your, your bubble is, is watching your wiggle on the oscillator. Yes. Really watching. good airway management. Yeah. Um, I yeah, really good airway management, making sure that you if a baby is on CPAP, making sure that there's a good seal, 
making sure that if they're on bubble, their prongs are in place, that you're not taking those prongs out when you're doing their care. Um, Yes, those are all the things that fall under the category of good airway management for these babies. And, you know, honestly, there's nothing wrong with calling your RT to help you with care. Oh, your RT should be part of all that, I feel like. I think the other thing when you talk about care is recognizing it it takes a lot like the, your oxygen consumption metabolic needs for doing cares mm-hmm. can be a lot for mm-hmm. some of these kids. So these babies really benefit from true minimal stimulation, right? As much as possible, allowing them to, to rest and grow and not only the rest and grow part, but to not require the extra that's part of you waking them up and, you know, doing all the things. Yeah, I agree. Just knowing what the baby's limits are as far as energy consumption and stuff like that. I think that was a really good point to make. Do we have anything else to add? I don't think so. All right. Any questions? Get a hold of us. Instagram, email us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.